I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey, Parallax News listeners, before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel, or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, the first in a monster-sized episode dealing with FDR, the road to World War II, what's become known as the McCollum Memorandum, and Pearl Harbor, which raises questions about the issue of whether or not there was advanced foreknowledge of the attack. With Douglas P. Horn, author of The McCollum Memorandum, a story of Washington, D.C. in 1940 to 1941, which, dear listener, is available on Amazon.com. It's a riveting read, as you'll learn in this conversation, which, as I stated earlier, is the first in a two-parter. The conversation lasted around three hours, actually a little bit over. I believe we hit around three hours and four minutes. So I decided to break it up into two parts. And before you worry about this getting a little bit too conspiratorial for your tastes, I think Doug builds a rather interesting circumstantial case for potential foreknowledge of the attacks. And what makes Doug interesting is that he is not an anti-FDR voice. As you'll hear in this episode when we talk about the dedication page in his book, once again, The McCullum Memorandum, a story of Washington, D.C. in 1940 to 1941, available on Amazon.com. It's a print-on-demand title, and I would recommend it. It raises some food-for-thought questions, and regardless of your view on Pearl Harbor, I think it is a riveting read. That'll fill you in on a lot of history of that time period. Before we get to that, though, I want to promote one of my sponsors, Holistic Therapy with Alexander Yu. 
You specializes in therapy for those dealing with trauma, PTSD, and grief, as well as LGBTIQ and gender issues. Also, I should mention marriage and relationship therapy. If you're looking for someone who can meet any of those needs for you, Alexander Yu is the therapist to go to. Alexander's approach is welcoming and all-embracing. He's also a reverend and can help anyone from various spiritual paths. As someone who is well-versed in various forms of spiritual practice. So, with that in mind, if Alexander sounds like he could meet your needs, please consider contacting him at therapy at alexanderyoo.com or you can call or text Alexander at 323-834-9828. Alexander Yu, Marriage and Family Therapist, California License Number 102886. And with that sponsorship message out of the way, let's get right to the first part of our monster-sized conversation with Douglas P. Horn, author of The McCullum Memorandum, a story of Washington, D.C. in 1940-1941. Available now, print-on-demand at Amazon.com. Welcome to Parallax Views. Douglas P. Horn, author of the fascinating book that we're going to be talking about, The McCollum Memorandum, A Story of Washington, D.C. in 1940 to 1941. And the subtitle is Franklin D. Roosevelt's Journey from Deterrence to Provocation on the Road to Pearl Harbor. How are you doing today, Douglas? I'm great, uh, JJ. I'm very happy to be with you, and I'm glad that you wanted to uh, discuss this subject in public. Thank you. So if you could, uh, maybe you could give a little bit of background about yourself and how you became interested in the topic of Pearl Harbor, and uh, maybe some background of your history as a researcher, because you've researched a number of uh, different issues, and uh, of course, you were part of the Assassination Records Review Board, um, which was formed in the uh, 90s, around the time Oliver Stone did JFK. Uh, that is also what gave us the infamous uh, Operation Northwoods uh, documents, I believe, correct? That's correct. I was the, actually, I was the tip of the spear in obtaining the Northwoods documents from the Pentagon and in getting them declassified in record time. So I'm proud to be associated with the Northwoods file. Very important. So uh, about me- I was going to say, uh, I think you also worked at the uh, the DC Holocaust Museum, uh, the maybe the State Department, I think I've, I've heard as well. So maybe you right. could talk uh, a little bit about yourself. Um, okay. I don't want to be spoiling everything there. Yeah. I'll try to talk about myself in a way that's reasonably brief, but hopefully interesting. Uh, I worked for the Navy for 20 years. Uh, 10 years, I was a Naval officer for 10 years. And for 10 more years, I was a civil servant, a Navy civil servant. And much of that time was spent at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, where I became familiar with the war graves and the history of the Pearl Harbor attack. And uh, 
that was a fascination I had actually from the time I was a teenager, but it really intensified because of the 14 years I spent in Hawaii working for the Navy in one capacity or another. I left uh, my Navy civil service job in Hawaii in 1993 to go to Washington, D.C., and uh, I took a job as a senior analyst with the JFK Assassination Records Review Board, and I had this job with them for the last three years of their four-year existence. So I was there most of the time when they were doing meaningful things. I missed their first uh, startup year, but I didn't miss too much. Uh, so, uh, you know, we our job is to liberate, find, and then liberate all the classified files we could find about the JFK assassination within the government. And uh, we did our best. We ran out of time, but we did our best. Uh, and then I did work for the Holocaust Museum in Washington for a couple of years after that. That was my parachute, I guess. Uh, and then I worked for the State Department for many years uh, in the passport office in Washington. Uh, it wasn't glorious work. Uh, it wasn't real exciting. It was important work, but uh, that took me to retirement. So I retired from the government after uh, 40 years of service in 2016. And now I live in uh, a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. So that's, that's about me. So then with this book, it's actually the third in uh, a series of books you've done on um, Pearl Harbor and the question of how much the U.S. and particularly FDR knew about uh, the Pearl Harbor attack in advance. Now, I wanted to get into uh, the history of that debate because I think some of my younger listeners may be unfamiliar with it. Um, I remember Robert Stinnett, the author of Day of Deceit, really causing this question to come out into the public, I would say, in the 90s. And well, really, his book came out, I believe, in 2000, Day of Deceit, which was the sort of book that really once again blew open this question of advanced knowledge. Uh, I believe other people wrote about it before him, uh, but uh, he got his hands on some documentation and uh, he actually, I think, got some very nuanced reviews, uh, at least in the New York Times, but a lot of historians have written him off. Uh, how is your book different from maybe Stinnett's? And also, uh, do you want to comment on uh, the, the people who've written off this question of advanced knowledge? Sure. Uh, you know, some of the earliest so-called revisionist historians, and that, you know, that doesn't have to be the dirty word that the mainstream media wants it to be or that mainstream historians want it to be. In a way, all history is revisionist because our interpretation of history is continuously changing as we learn more, as we get more facts. And of course, the age in which people live affects their attitudes uh, and how they interpret history. So uh, revisionism is always happening. But in terms of Pearl Harbor, the earliest uh, revisionists were an Admiral Theobald who wrote a book after the war and then historians uh, Tansel and, and Beard. Uh, and then later, uh, a popular author, John Tolan, wrote a famous book called Infamy in the 80s. 
And then other authors have written, uh, John Costello, and, uh, and then Robert Stinnett in the year 2000, as you mentioned. And uh, Stinnett revealed a new document to the public that no one had ever seen or heard of before. And this is the McCollum Memorandum, which ends up becoming the title of my book. Uh, so this memo written by the head of the Far East desk at the Office of Naval Intelligence, uh, this memo written on October 7th, 1940, uh, this became, this, he found this in the archives in 1995, and he published a facsimile of it, uh, a complete, authentic, page-by-page -page copy of it, the way the document looks, with the declassification stamps all over it, uh, he published this in his book in the year 2000, his book, Day of Deceit. And so uh, one of his questions was what effect did this document, this memorandum about Far East policy have on the president, on President Roosevelt? And he talked a lot in his book about uh, intercepting Japanese messages and code breaking. And, uh, and he also talked about the famous diary entries of the Dutch naval attache in Washington, DC. He revived that subject, which needed to be revived. Uh, and I'll be talking about this later today, but uh, the Dutch naval attache uh, had carte blanche access to the US Navy. And uh, he recorded in his diary that there were Japanese aircraft carriers heading east across the Pacific toward Hawaii. He recorded this on two different days of his diary, December 2nd and December 6th, 1941. And we'll talk about this later in more detail, but so he revived uh, the interest in the Raneft, Captain Raneft was the guy's name, the Dutch naval attache, Johan Raneft. He revived interest in the Raneft uh, diaries. Uh, he revealed the McCollum memorandum to us, and he talked a lot about code breaking. He got most of it right, not all of it right, I ended up doing more research than he had in code breaking. Uh, and we know more now than we did in the 80s and the 90s. So uh, he performed a valuable service by resurrecting the subject of did FDR have foreknowledge about the attack? And if so, what does it mean? What does it mean about him as a president? What does it mean about our foreign policy? What does it mean about the people that teach mainstream history at universities and high school? So there's this uh, longstanding uh, schism or debate out there, I guess you'd call it, between the mainstream historians who say, oh, of course, President Roosevelt didn't have foreknowledge about the Pearl Harbor attack because he loved the Navy too much to allow anything like that to happen. That's their simplistic argument in a nutshell. Uh, and that there's no strong evidence. Well, actually there is strong evidence which I'll be talking about. It's strong to me. Uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about his personality and uh, what the evidence means and what Roosevelt's goals were in 1940 and 41. It's very important to understand what his goals were and where American public opinion was at the time and how he was trying to move American public opinion. Well, then let's talk about that. I think that's a great segue where I wanted to go next, because I think a lot of people forget um, before Pearl Harbor, I mean, you had things like the America First movement, which, you know, people are now 
that term is coming back into vogue um, in the age of you know Trump and and uh, his supporters uh, and whatnot. But uh, you know that actually is a term that dates back to the World War II era because most Americans did not want to get involved in World War II and sort of you know that's that right. that's the origins of the. America First movement, uh, and it, it involved a lot of uh, very famous people, Charles Lindbergh and uh, many others. So if you could fill my listeners in on a little bit more of that history, I know I gave uh, a few details there. Yeah. I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, there was a reaction to World War I by the American people, and it, it was so strong that, yeah, we were told that that would be the war to end all wars and that uh, we would make the world safer democracy ad nauseum. And uh, so when that war was over, uh, the American disillusionment with the affairs of Europe and with what the Europeans had done to them, slaughtered themselves for four years uh, in trench warfare. And, you know, we ended up joining late and we were basically the decisive leverage at the end. to help the allies beat an exhausted Germany, which had been uh, either holding a stalemate or winning the war much of those four years. So uh, they were disillusioned with the results of that war to the point where President Wilson couldn't even sell joining the League of Nations to the American Senate. So, you know, this, this treaty he signed to join the League of Nations, collective security in the world was rejected by the Senate. And the American people uh, came to believe that America got dragged into the war in Europe in World War I because of profiteers, you know, munitions, profiteers, and bankers, that they dragged us into the war to make profits. This was the uh, running suspicion during the 1930s. So the American Congress passed a series of laws called the Neutrality Acts, which said uh, if there are belligerents, you know, nations involved in war with each other elsewhere in the world were not allowed to sell. The Americans are not allowed to sell them weapons anymore. We're not allowed to make them loans. And we're not allowed to have them carry weapons of war on our merchant ships because it was unrestricted submarine warfare by Germany in 1917 that dragged us into the war. That's what that was the proximate cause of us getting in. That was the Casas Belli. So uh, in 1939, when Hitler invades Poland, you know, he's, he's gotten away with some things. He's marched into the Rhineland with the German army, which was a forbidden zone for the German military. He marched in the Rhineland in 1936. The Allies didn't do anything about it. The World War I Allies, France and Britain didn't do anything about it. Uh, He had been rearming Germany since he took power in January 1933. That was against the Versailles Treaty also. The Allies didn't do anything about it. And then he uh, annexed Austria in 1936. That was called the Anschluss. Uh, Basically rolled in there with armored vehicles and tanks and took over Austria and said, you're our brothers, you're a part of Germany now. And nobody did about it. And then he demanded upon threat of war he did a lot of saber rattling in 1938. Upon threat of war, he, he forced Britain and France to cave in 
and give him the border areas, the fortified border areas of Czechoslovakia called the Sudetenland. These were the areas with German speaking minorities, large German speaking minorities in the border areas of Czechoslovakia. And he forced uh, his former opponents, Germany's former opponents in World War I to give those to him and partially dismember this country, this liberal country that had only existed since the end of World War I. And so uh, this is the stage upon which we find ourselves in 1939 when uh, the, the British uh, were extremely upset that Hitler told Prime Minister Chamberlain in Great Britain that uh, uh, this is my last territorial demand in Europe. You give me the Sudetenland and, and I, won't, I don't want any more territory in Europe. Well, he violated that uh, less than six months later by rolling in and taking the rest of Czechoslovakia in March 1939. And the British were so upset with that, with that bad faith, and with Chamberlain really looking bad, and suddenly looking, instead of like a savior, preserving the peace, he suddenly looked worthless and weak, and, and like a fool who had been snookered, which is what he was. He was a fool. He was an appeaser. So uh, at that point, the British said, okay, we hereby give Poland, which was obviously Hitler's next target, we give Poland an unconditional military guarantee. They made that guarantee on March 31st, 39. Hitler thought it was a bluff and that the British were bluffing. So he invades Poland on September 1st, 1939. It turned out the British were not bluffing. They were tired of his antics and uh, so Britain and France declared war on Germany on September 3rd, two days later. So then at this point, you know, the American people are a little bit nervous. So Roosevelt tells the American people who were very pacifist at this time, I'm getting back to your original question. They're very pacifist. They don't wanna be involved in European wars again. They see a big European war starting. They don't want any part of it. He tells them, well, it's the intention of this nation to remain a neutral nation, but we can't remain neutral in our hearts and our minds because we see what's happened. So that was the mixed message he sent out in September, 1939. And then two months later in November, after Poland has fallen, they fell after a, a two weeks of blitzkrieg by Germany and then four weeks of mopping up uh, and the Soviet Union grabbed the, the eastern half of Poland in a secret deal they made with Hitler. Germany took the west, the Soviets got the east. And uh, so Roosevelt went to Congress in November 39. This is important. And he said, I want you to revise the Neutrality Act, which right now forbid us to sell arms to other nations who are at war and forbids those arms to travel on American ships, et cetera. And it forbids us to give war loans. It forbids, forbids us to give loans to nations at war. And this was important to the Congress because the British had defaulted on all their debts after World War I. We had loaned them a lot of money, American banks, during World War I. And they had turned around and purchased munitions from the United States in great quantities. And uh, then they defaulted after the war and said, sorry, we're bankrupt. We can't pay off these loans. It's our national policy that we're not going to pay off these loans, too bad. So the reaction was the Neutrality Act and the Johnson Act, which said, 
no more war loans to nations at war. So uh, in November, he went to Congress and said, I want you to revise the Neutrality Act so that we can do cash and carry. If a belligerent, if a nation at war pays cash on the barrelhead and they bring their own ships over to carry these things, these implements of war, that it, that it makes it legal for us to sell them implements of war. It'll help our industry. It'll help us get out of the depression, which was still lagging on even in 1939. And we weren't totally out of the depression. In fact, we had gone back into recession in 1937. So he said, I want you to approve, uh, I want you to approve cash and carry. And they did. Uh, so that what they approved was selling munitions of war to European nations if they took them on their own ships or on the ships of other nations, but not American merchant ships, and if they paid cash. So that was a big change right there in our policy. And uh, so uh, the following spring is when you know what really hit the fan. So we had this phony war, a sitting war, where Germany and, Germany and uh, England and France really didn't fight each other over Poland. Even though Britain and France had declared war on Germany over the invasion of Poland, it, was to, it wasn't really gonna save Poland and it didn't, but it was designed to send the signal that we're not gonna allow Germany to become, uh, Nazi Germany to become the preeminent European continental power. We're not gonna let that happen. So, so but they didn't fight, but they didn't, the British and French didn't do anything. They didn't fight Germany for half a year. They just dropped leaflets on each other. It was really a joke. So Hitler decided uh, after 19, well, <laughs> we know this now, we didn't know it then. He wanted the German army, the German armed forces to invade France in November of 1939, right after the Polish campaign had just finished. And the German army kept saying, we need a year to get ready for this. We can't do this now. We're still in half of our armies in Poland. Uh, we're not logistically ready for this. So there were a series of 19 postponements in the big invasion of France, which happened in May 1940. So here's what happened. Hitler takes Norway and Denmark in April of 1940 with this big surprise attack. The, Ger the small German Navy uh, and paratroopers took Norway by surprise and, uh, and they rolled into Denmark. That was no problem either. And that was to keep the iron ore flowing to Germany from Sweden through Norwegian seaports. That was what that was about because the British were about to blockade and mine the Norwegian seaports and the Germans said, no, you're not. So they took Norway and Denmark. And then the very next month, it hit the fan. Germany invaded Belgium, uh, the Netherlands and France, their traditional enemy. It was a massive invasion. After the 19 postponements, it finally happened on May 10th, 1940. By coincidence, that's the same day Winston Churchill became prime minister. Uh, and uh, so what, at this time, the American people were very strongly against getting into the European war, which is what everybody called it then. It wasn't World War II yet, it was the European war, but it had suddenly become a much bigger war. And uh, as 1940 progressed, American sympathies for England became stronger and stronger in the public mind. 
and Roosevelt slowly moved the American public into supporting giving all material aid that we could to Great Britain short of war, providing they paid for it and providing they took it on their own merchant ships or on merchant ships of other nations, but not on American merchant ships. Uh, so American, the American people slowly, Roosevelt persuaded them through speeches uh, uh, to accommodate the idea of giving all the aid we could to England uh, without entering the war ourselves. But the American people still did not want to enter the war in Europe. And I guess I should backtrack a little. What had happened was uh, Germany quickly conquered France in a month, in just a little over one month. In four years, they couldn't do it in World War I. A little over a month, this combination of tanks and, uh, and uh, air power conquered France. And the British army, the entire British army was almost captured and barely escaped. So we have the miracle of Dunkirk in June, uh, late May and June, 1940. And the British managed to get away uh, about 338,000 British and French soldiers, most, most of them British. So most of the British expeditionary force escaped from France, but hey, let's face it, they were kicked off the continent by the Nazi, uh, by Nazi Germany. And they left without their weapons. They couldn't take their tanks with them or their artillery or half of these guys abandoned their rifles, threw them on the beach. They spent 10 days getting on boats and ships. So uh, the, Britain got most of its army back, but was isolated, truly alone, uh, had an army that was defanged, didn't have most of its heavy weapons. And uh, they were buying all the weapons they could from us, but they were gonna run out of cash eventually. And so uh, I would say by the end of 1940, most two-thirds of the Americans had uh, decided that they supported giving all aid we could to Great Britain, providing they paid for it. But they didn't want to enter the war against Germany. In large numbers, didn't want to. And so this America First movement that you mentioned uh, arose concurrent with Roosevelt running for a third term as president. So Roosevelt was a Wilsonian internationalist. And what that means is that he wished we had joined the League of Nations. He believed in collective security, but we hadn't joined. So we didn't really have any influence in the European affairs and uh, because we weren't a member of the League of Nations. And uh, he didn't like the neutrality acts. He had signed them because that was the public consensus in the mid and uh, in the mid thirties, but he didn't like them because they restrained his freedom of action. So, uh, so he decides to run for a third term and no president had ever done this before. There was an, you know, an, uh, an informal tradition started by George Washington that you only serve for two terms at the most and then you resign and go back to the farm or your estate or whatever it is. Roosevelt decides to run for a third term and he was often called the Sphinx in the White House, because nobody really understood what his inner intentions were. Uh, he, uh, he played all of his cards very close to his vest as far as what his true intentions were. He was a great persuader. 
the fireside chats allowed him to communicate directly with the American people on the radio whenever he wanted to uh, and to go over the heads of Congress, basically. Uh, but nobody really knew what he was going to do about the European war. And so why was he running for a third term? Was it to keep us out of the war, which is what he said he would do in 1939, or was it to get us into the war? Now, the isolationist movement in America and the largest uh, conglomeration of those people was called the America's First Movement, which was founded in September 1940, just when the presidential campaign is heating up, uh, was about a third of the country. About one third of the country uh, were uh, isolationists, uh, didn't want to enter the war under any circumstances, and didn't even support aid to Britain because they thought the aid to Britain would tie us closer to them and eventually drag us in. So he's fighting a battle of, for public opinion and to educate the public on what he thought was important for months. And this battle went on from the time the war started in September 39. And then when, when it really hit the fan in Europe in May 1940, when Hitler invades Western Europe, Roosevelt went to Congress and said, I want a 500% increase in the defense budget right now, 500%. Can you imagine that? No one would do anything like that today. He got it. The panic was really on. And, uh, and he says, I want to build 50,000 planes a year. And that was inconceivable at the time, not only from financially, but industrially, inconceivable that, that a country could do something like that. But they agreed. Not only that, the, the gradual naval rearmament that had begun in the United States under Roosevelt in the mid-1930s and the late 30s was dramatically accelerated. So the, the, the summer of 1940, at Roosevelt's request, the Congress passed the Two Ocean Navy Act, which was going to increase the size of the United States Navy by 70% and give us a Navy big enough to uh, fight an offensive in one ocean and play defense in the other ocean. And we were gonna have an, a Navy bigger than all the navies of the next three biggest navies combined once that Navy was built in 1944 or 45. So Congress funded that in July of 1940, in addition to the 500% increase in overall defense spending. Not only that, that summer Roosevelt had the guts. Can you imagine this in a nation where one third of the people are isolationists? He has the guts to propose a draft, the first peacetime draft in American history, the Selective Service Act. And there were hearings in Congress and everything, and it was very controversial. And uh, But George Marshall, the chief of staff of the army, told Congress, look, we've got the 18th largest army in the world. We don't have modern weapons. And so we need a modern Army Air Force, Army Air Corps, and we need a, to expand the size of the Army. And the, you know, the rest of the world is at war. There's either war in the Far East between Japan and China, uh, which may expand to other areas of the Far East, or there's war all over Europe now. We need just as our own prudent actions in the Western Hemisphere to, to have a peacetime draft. So uh, believe it or not, in this climate, the draft actually passed in, in September, and I, I think it was September, and the first uh, draft drawings were held in October before, this is before the presidential election. So 
there's a lot going on in this country. There's a lot of turmoil. The American people have decided they want to give aid to Great Britain, which is now isolated, kicked out of France, fighting the Battle of Britain, fighting the air war against the German Air Force, London getting bombed and burning, other German, uh, excuse me, other British cities burning under the German Air Force onslaught. They want to give all the aid they can to Great Britain, but they still don't want to fight uh, the Nazis, which have the most fearsome army the world has ever seen. Uh, and uh, so that's the American public opinion. And what happened the following year, we'll be talking a lot about 1941 today, but by the end of 1941, by the time uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked, the number of people who thought America would actually eventually have to get into the war for the allies to win was a majority. They, they accepted that, hey, eventually we're gonna get dragged in, we're gonna have to get in for the allies to win. But 80% of the American people when asked the question by pollsters did not wanna fight Germany, 80% by December, 1941. So the numbers that didn't wanna get involved in the European war had increased during 1940 and 41. The American people were in, in favor of aiding Great Britain and uh, did so with increasing materiel. We'll talk about that too. Uh, but uh, this, this resolution not to get involved in the European war as a matter of choice had become stronger because of the American First Committee and the speeches by Charles Lindbergh and others and about, and about uh, one third of the American people were isolationists, but about half of the newspapers were isolationists, and many of them were in the Midwest. Uh, uh, so there we are. That's my background. That's very good. That's very good. And then I think that's a good lead into. So, well, first off, it, it's interesting we're talking about um, isolationism, uh, Wilsonianism all of these different sort of um, ideological struggles going on in the foreign policy arena, because uh, at the beginning of the book, you have a dedication page. And I want you to tell us about that dedication page, but what's really uh, interesting to me about this book, and it comes out in the dedication page, which is a dedication page to FDR. Uh, you know, a lot of the critics um, of FDR or even just people uh, that are fans of, say, the Robert Stinnett book, tend to be, in my experience, uh, very much on the sort of libertarian end. Um, a lot of people that, that may actually agree with uh, non-interventionism or isolationism, uh, you have a very different view from all that. Um, so uh, talk about that dedication page, if I'd you could. I'd love to. I'd love to. That's a great way to launch into the book. Uh, so uh, first of all, this book that you held up earlier, the McCollum Memorandum has its origins in another book that I wrote uh, in 2017. So in 2017, I published a two-volume book, a scholarly work full of hundreds of footnotes, a long, long chronology, historical chronology of events all over the world from 1931 through 1941, two volumes, hundreds of footnotes, a beautiful bibliography, a long index. So I was pleased with that book up to a point. 
but I couldn't let go of the subject. And I decided I wanted to present the same material in a totally different way. That was much more enjoyable to read, much more accessible. And that's what I've done in the McCalla Memorandum, which is a one volume book, not a two volume book. And it's a book for, sure, it's a book for uh, college graduates and uh, intelligent high school graduates. But it's not what I would call a scholarly work in the sense that it's not full of hundreds of footnotes and long footnoted essays. It's a book that's designed to be readable, brings the human elements to the story to the fore, and really has some good flow to it. So I've condensed this from a two volume to a one volume book. I think it's much more accessible. And so I think the way to launch into my unique take on the subject is to do what you asked me to do and uh, to read the dedication page. Oh, and before I do that, I, I would point this out. My intention here in this book was originally to write an historical novel, not with fictional characters, but an historical novel with the real historical characters uh, and just flesh out the cabinet meetings, the uh, inner thoughts, the private conversations between uh, great men and uh, what was going on in the rest of the world. Uh, and I eventually decided that was impossible, that uh, that could not be done. So about 35 to 40% of this book is historical novel with no fictional characters, with the real characters. And about 60% of it, or maybe 65% is straight historical background and exposition. But I still think this is a much better way to approach the subject so if you don't care to read a two-volume book full of footnotes, you don't have to. You can read the McCollum Memorandum. So let, let me read the dedication page. Uh, the, the dedication is, is a long one. Uh, the first half is pretty standard fare for someone who's a liberal or a progressive or even a libertarian. Here, here is the first half of the dedication page. To the memory of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, savior of his country from 1933 to 36, defender of Western civilization from 1940 to 45, and champion of freedom. So that's not gonna surprise a lot of people. You can tell that I, and you can tell that I admire President Roosevelt. Here's the second half of the dedication page, which should really grab everybody's attention. And I wrote the second half of this dedication page after I finished writing the McCollum Memorandum. So after I finished this book, I thought, how can I encapsulate what this book is really about for the readers? And here's the second half of the dedication. He employed all of his political skills, persuasion, dissembling, duplicity, and iron resolve to pull the world out of the dark abyss. His sober appreciation of the overwhelming danger to civilization posed by Nazi Germany and to a lesser extent by Imperial Japan, earned him a deserved place in history above that of all US presidents. He was a Machiavellian master of realpolitik employed in the pursuit of altruistic core values. So this dedication page of mine, which I'm very fond of because it's a nice encapsulation of what the book is about. Uh, I'm basically challenging the legions of people out there who have grown up 
reading books that say the following, reading books that say, well, Roosevelt probably knew about the forthcoming attack on Pearl Harbor, but it makes him a warmonger and someone we shouldn't admire very much. So I'm combating that attitude. I'm telling you, I not only think he probably did have foreknowledge that he gained foreknowledge late in the game, late in November, 1941, but I'm telling you, he did know about it. I've painted the most persuasive case that I can with evidence and that it does not make him a warmonger or a bad person. And by the time you finish my book, hopefully you'll understand why I have this attitude. So that should get your interest if you have an open mind and you wanna learn about a new take on a very famous subject. So and then, course, mm -hmm. go ahead. Go on. No, no, go on, please. So when you launch into this subject, we're gonna to touch about some historical markers some key events in the timeline that takes Roosevelt on a journey from deterrence where he wants to deter Nazi Germany and deter Japan and prevent them from making war on us, his journey from deterrence to provocation. And he did make a journey, and I'll describe that for you, how he moved from deterrence to provocation against Germany and how he moved from deterrence to provocation against Japan during 1940 and 41. So be, before we talk about these historical milestones, I mean, let's talk about Roosevelt's as a man. Uh, he was really a complicated person. He's an endlessly fascinating subject to study. And uh, I've got a very important page at the end of my book, near the very end of my book, which has about seven or eight key quotes about Roosevelt by other historians. And uh, the first quote I'd like to read you, this will only take about a minute, minute and a half, is from Walter Lippmann. Walter Lippmann was a very famous journalist for like four decades. And Walter Lippmann said this about FDR, quote, Roosevelt was a wonderful finagler. He loved to take a complicated thing, which involved a certain amount of deception hornswoggling of people and somehow get it done, end quote. So that's Lippmann. This is Roosevelt describing himself to his secretary, the treasury, Henry Morgenthau in 1942. Now we'd entered the war by then, uh, but this is Roosevelt describing himself to Morgenthau. And uh, I think it's the same Roosevelt that we're dealing with in 1937 and 1939 and 40 and 41. So Roosevelt said, quote, you know I am a juggler, and I never let my right hand know what my left hand does. I am perfectly willing to mislead and tell untruths if it will help win the war, end quote. So here's John Meacham. If uh, people watch MSNBC, they see John Meacham. He's, he's an historian who's on quite a, quite a bit. And here's what he said in his book, uh, Franklin and Winston, about Roosevelt's relationship with Churchill. Quote, what could make Roosevelt a trying husband and a frustrating friend could make him a great president. Sometimes politicians have to pursue different courses at the same time and deceive those closest to them about what they are doing, end quote. And this is where, uh, you know, you use the term Machiavellian and, and realpolitik. Uh, right. That's basically where that's coming in now. 
Yes, sir. Thank you. So here's here's the blunt spoken uh, Harry Truman, not one of our foremost intellectuals, but he, he was he did hit the nail on the head every once in a while with a with a blunt phrase. So this is Truman quote. Now remember, for people that are young in the audience, Roosevelt died in office in April 45, and Truman was vice president then, and he took over. And then Truman was president until he was until uh, 1952, when Eisenhower was elected. So uh, here's what Truman said, quote, about FDR. He was the coldest man I ever met. He didn't give a damn personally for me or you or anyone else in the world as far as I could see. But he was a great president. He brought this country into the 20th century, end quote. So here's James McGregor Burns, one of Roosevelt's biographers, about FDR, quote, he could be bold or cautious, Machiavellian or moralistic, impetuous or temporizing, urbane or almost rustic, end quote. Here's another statement attributed to FDR. It's probably apocryphal. He probably didn't say these exact words, but several people in the last three or four decades have attributed this to him, and you'll see it on the internet. The quote goes like this. In politics, nothing happens by accident. If it happens, you can bet it was planned that way, end quote. And then the last quote I have for you is not about Roosevelt. It's about the attack on Pearl Harbor. And it's going to shock some of you. But I want you to consider who said it. The, the man who said this in 1970 in his oral history was our foremost code breaker in World War II, Commander Joseph Rochefort of the US Navy, who broke the Japanese Navy JN-25 code shortly after Pearl Harbor and uh, allowed us to, to meet the Japanese in battle at Coral Sea and Midway. And we owe our great victory at Midway to his code breaking. So here's what Rochefort said in 1970. The attack on Pearl Harbor was a pretty cheap price to pay for unifying the country, end quote. So those are some things to keep in mind about, about FDR as we're, as we're talking today. And uh, maybe this takes us back to the title of the book, which is uh, the McCollum Memorandum. Uh, maybe, JG, we should start with the McCollum Memorandum. What is that? And what are the three or four key things that it said? Is, is that a good idea? Yes, I think that's a perfect place to go. Uh, we'll start with the McCollum Memorandum, and then we can go into the uh, other milestones that we need to hit. Great. So there was a man named uh, Joseph McCollum. Robert Stinnett wrote about him uh, in his book, uh, Day of Deceit. The year 2000 is when it was published, and he, he worked on this book for a long time. He was a journalist from the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, so McCollum was the head of the Far East desk in the Office of Naval Intelligence uh, in Washington. So, you know, the uh, Pentagon didn't open up until 1942. So this was at the, the building called Main Navy on Constitution Avenue, which was right next to the Army headquarters, which was called the Munitions Building, or sometimes it was called the War Department. So the two buildings were huge. They were built during World War I, and they were right next to each other on Constitution Avenue. So the uh, 
ONI director at his office in that building, along with everybody else at, in Navy headquarters. So McCollum had uh, was born in Japan from missionary parent of missionary parents, and uh, lived there as a child. <clears throat> went back there after Naval Academy graduation for language training, and then he went back there again to be a naval an assistant naval attaché in the 1930s, and to to conduct language training for other naval officers who became our code breakers and our intelligence experts experts during World War II. So he was a very interesting guy. And uh, he held the Japan desk within ONI, Office of Naval Intelligence, in the late 30s. And then when he went back to ONI, uh, a couple of years later, he was in charge of the Far East desk. And one of the people he had trained to speak Japanese, Ethelbert Watts, became the guy in charge of the Japan desk. So McCollum was only a commander in the Navy in 05 in 1940, but he was a very knowledgeable guy and people listened to him. So what happened in 1940 in October? Well, let's talk about what happened in May. In May 1940, Hitler invades Western Europe. And what he's doing is he's invading countries that have colonies all over the Far East. He's invading France, which has colonies all over Southeast Asia. It was called French Indochina. Now we call it Vietnam and Cambodia. And the British had the colony of Malaya and Singapore and British Borneo. And then Holland was invaded in May 1940 also by Hitler. And their big colony was enormous. It's now called Indonesia, but it was called the Dutch East Indies at that time, a repository of huge amounts of the world's oil, okay? So Roosevelt, as an act of deterrence, like just warning off Japan, in May 1940, at the end of the annual fleet exercise, which happened in the Hawaiian area, he told the U.S. fleet to stay in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor and not come home to the West Coast. A lot of these ships are home ported in San Diego or San Pedro, and they'd get all their overhauls, a lot of them in uh, Seattle or in San Diego. But they were, it was a West Coast fleet, and most of the U.S. fleet was on the West Coast. Very, sm very small parts of it were in the Atlantic because we depended on the British Navy to keep the Atlantic safe. Most of our ships are in the Pacific. So he tells them to stay in the Pacific at Pearl Harbor. And the commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet J.O. Richardson, Admiral Richardson, was very unhappy about this because the training facilities in Pearl were inferior. The infrastructure for training was inferior to that on the West Coast, and the industrial capacity there for repair. There was a shipyard, and there were dry docks, but they were inferior to the industrial facilities on the U.S. West Coast. So he wasn't happy with that, uh, and it became clear that this was not something temporary that Roosevelt was going to keep the fleet there. And uh, because uh, Roosevelt didn't want Japan attacking European colonies when their countries were being beaten to death by Hitler in Europe. So that was why he did that with the fleet was an act of deterrence. So Roosevelt, I mean, uh, Richardson made a lot of noise about this. He insisted on coming back to talk to the president in July of 1940. And he was allowed to do that. 
and he told the president the fleet shouldn't be home ported in Pearl Harbor. It's exposed. It's an inferior location for training and, and for industrial support, but the fleet's exposed and it should go back to the West Coast. And Roosevelt told him, no, uh, I'm smarter than you are about this in so many words. And, uh, and I'm going to keep the fleet there. It's having a deterrent effect. So October rolls around. A lot has happened. I'll just summarize it in one way. Roosevelt's decided to run for president a third time. The American First Movement is very strong in the United States with a lot of newspaper support. And they're isolationists. Roosevelt's running for office. We now have a national draft. And the British are buying a lot of war material from us. Uh, so Germany, Italy, and Japan signed an alliance in September 1940. It was called the Tripartite Pact. It was a defensive alliance aimed at the United States to keep us out of the European war, because that alliance basically said, hey, Germany recognizes a new order in the Far East led by Japan. And Japan says, we recognize a new order in Europe led by Germany and Italy. And they all said in their treaty that if a third country not now involved in the European war was to attack any of us, any of us, Japan, Italy, Germany, all of us will go to war with that country if you dare to get involved in the European war and fight one of us. That's what the tripartite pact said. So that in the minds of Americans everywhere aligned Japan, which was already at war with China for four years, since 1937, it aligned Japan firmly with aggressive, rapacious powers. And they formed a triumvirate of nations that were clearly set on looting the planet, taking over and looting the planet, and they're warning us off. So that's the background to what happened in October, which is uh, the new Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, orders Admiral Richardson to come to Washington again. He's ordered this time. So this admiral has continued to complain about the fleet being at Pearl Harbor. He doesn't like it. So the chief of naval operations, Admiral Stark in Washington, they're both four-star admirals, but Stark is slightly higher in rank. Uh, Stark didn't like his, his, his complaining. Roosevelt didn't like it. So he's recalled to Washington to have discussions with the president. And the day before that meeting, that crucial meeting, I call it the Clash of the Titans, because it was. Uh, Roosevelt meets Richardson, part two. What's going to happen? McCollum, the head of the Far East desk, writes a memo about Far East policy to his boss, the head of Navy intelligence. I'm telling you that this is a memo for the president. It's what, what should our policy be in the Far East in light of events in Europe? And what's just happened in Europe is France has been defeated. England's kicked off the continent. England's starting to go broke. They're isolated. They're being bombed by the German Air Force every night. And, uh, and the tripartite pact has just been signed, warning off the United States. So what should our policy be in the Far East? So this is a way to write a memo for the president 
and gives him plausible deniability because it's not addressed to Franklin Roosevelt, it's addressed to the director of ONI. But Roosevelt had held meetings almost every single afternoon with naval officers. After his official calls were over with members of Congress and others, he would meet late in the afternoon with his naval coterie. And one of the people that was part of that select group was the director of naval intelligence. So this memo is written on October 7th, the day before the big meeting between Roosevelt and Richardson. And it basically tells Roosevelt what our policy should be about Japan the day before Roosevelt meets with Richardson. So uh, I'm going to read for you just parts of three paragraphs. This is the one that will get your attention. Paragraph nine says, it is not believed that in the present state of political opinion, the United States government is capable of declaring war against Japan without more ado. So he's basically describing earlier in the memo the fact that we should neuter Japan and knock them out of the world picture with military force so that they can't close with Germany and Italy by taking over the Indian Ocean and so that they can't meet the Germans in the Middle East and starve the British Empire from its colonies, especially India and the oil of uh, Persia and Arabia. So he's been recommending earlier in this memo that, that we should get rid of Japan before they can help Japan Hitler win the war. And this is all in the context of the tripartite pact the month before. So once again, he says in paragraph nine, well, we can't declare war against Japan without more ado. Therefore, as if it would be a good thing to declare war against Japan. So therefore, he recommends eight courses of action. And the last three I'm going to read to you because they were all followed by Roosevelt over the following year. Keep the main strength of the U.S. fleet now in the Pacific in the vicinity of the Hawaiian Islands. Keep it there. The next one, insist that the Dutch refuse to grant Japanese demands for undue economic concessions, particularly oil. Now, this was important because Japan got 90% of its oil from the United States. Some books say more than 80%. Most books say about 90%. Some books say over 94%. So they got almost all of their oil from the United States. And they were negotiating with the Dutch to get a lot of oil from the East Indies. So McCollum is saying, work with the Dutch and deny, get them to deny the Japanese access to the oil they have. Don't even sell it to them. And the final point is, completely embargo all US trade with Japan in collaboration with a similar embargo imposed by the British Empire. Now, Roosevelt ended up doing all three of these things. Uh, and so here's the final paragraph of the heart of his memo. McCollum writes, quote, if by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. At all events, we must be fully prepared to accept the threat of war, end quote. One more time, if by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. That's a remarkable statement to put in writing. And it's no wonder that uh, it wasn't addressed to the president. If he'd received a memo like that and hadn't 
fired the guy that sent it to him and it was ever revealed in the newspapers, uh, he would he might have been impeached. So this is the memo of advice that the director of ONI, Rear Admiral Anderson, shows Roosevelt the night before. Roosevelt meets with Admiral Richardson the next day. He tells Richardson- And, and people should keep in mind, Richardson and, and uh, FDR butt heads a lot. They butt heads a lot. They had butted heads in July. And this was the showdown. Uh, this was like a high noon on Main Street in a Western movie, you know? And this, this all comes verbatim from Richardson's memoirs, which he wrote in the 1950s. Uh, he also testified to Congress in 45 and 46 after Roosevelt was dead, but he let it all hang out in his memoirs. And it's called On the Treadmill to Pearl Harbor. And you can purchase that book and read it. So earlier in July, Richardson wrote, he had gotten the impression from Roosevelt in July that if he got reelected and Great Britain was still in the war, hadn't surrendered yet to Germany, that the United States would probably enter the European war. That's the impression Richardson got in July from his meeting with Roosevelt, when Roosevelt refused to remove the fleet from Pearl Harbor. So in October on the 8th, they meet again. They argue about the Pearl Harbor business and it's case closed. Roosevelt says, I know it's having a deterrent effect, no matter what you think. And uh, the fleet's gonna stay there and that's the way it is. And Richardson is very abrupt with the president. He says, look, uh, this is not fooling anyone in Japan who's a military man. They know we don't have the fleet supply train, the oilers and resupply ships in Hawaii sufficient to support an offensive in the Pacific. They know we don't have that. And they probably know we don't have the adequate training facilities and in, 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 in a big enough shipyard in Hawaii. But he says, I don't think this is fooling anybody in Japan, Mr. President. The president says, oh, I know it is. And that's the way it's going to be. So that was the end of that conversation. And so then Richardson asked Roosevelt, do you think we'll enter the war? So uh, in July, when Richardson had met with FDR, he left with the impression that the United States would enter the war in Europe after Roosevelt was reelected if he was reelected and if Great Britain was still in the war and hadn't surrendered or made a peace deal with Hitler. That was the impression he had. So during his meeting on October 8th, he asked Roosevelt, do you think we'll enter the war? And when Richardson asked the question, he was talking about the war in Europe, which now encompassed half the globe. And the answer he got shocked him because Roosevelt gave him an answer that wasn't talking about the war in Europe. It was talking about war with Japan. This is what was on Roosevelt's mind after reading McCollum's memorandum the night before. Uh, so Roosevelt answered the question, will we enter the war, by saying the following. If the Japanese attack Thailand or the Kra Peninsula, now the Kra Peninsula connects Thailand with, with Malaya, okay? It's, it's an isthmus. If the Japanese attack Thailand, if they attack the Kra Peninsula or Malaya. And Singapore, the British colony of Singapore, is at the bottommost tip of Malaya. And he says, or if the Japanese attack the Dutch East Indies, where all the oil is, we won't enter the war. And then Roosevelt actually said, even if the Japanese attack the Philippines, which was then a US colony, 
Okay, we, we had a promised independence to the Philippines in 46, but it was a US colony, or Commonwealth, if you want to call it that, but it was a territorial, territorial possession of ours obtained following the Spanish-American War. So uh, he said, even if they attack the Philippines, we may not enter the war. And when Roosevelt made those statements to Richardson, he was thinking about the isolationism in America and the fact that the Congress would never approve a declaration of war if, the, if Japan did those things. But this is what Roosevelt ended the conversation with. He said, but sooner or later, as events progress around the world, the Japs will make a mistake and we will then enter the war. This is what he told Richardson, quote unquote, the Japs will make a mistake and we will then enter the war, end quote. In other words, and yes, he used that language. Uh, so this was Roosevelt's read at the time. And so the meeting is blown up at the end when uh, Richardson tells the president, Mr. President, I'm sorry to tell you that the senior officers of the Navy don't have confidence in you and do not have the confidence that you could lead an offensive in the Pacific Ocean if it was necessary. <laughs> Roosevelt was literally flabbergasted. Uh, he didn't like personal confrontations. He, uh, he didn't like face-to-face -face conflict. He was stunned that someone would say this to his face because Roosevelt loved the Navy. He considered himself a naval president. So uh, all he could say was, Joe. He, he called J.O. Richardson. He called him Joe. He used, his first two initials became Joe. He said, Joe, you don't understand. My hands are tied during an election. There's only so many things I can do, which really didn't mean much of anything. Uh, oh, yeah, Richardson wanted recruiting to go up, too. He wanted a lot more Navy recruiting so that we could man up this two ocean Navy as it was getting built, because he didn't think we were recruiting enough sailors. So Roosevelt's saying, I can't do that. This is an election year. So uh, that was the end of that meeting. And uh, a month later, Richardson reads in the Kiplinger newsletter. Can you believe that? This is an economic newspaper. Uh, Richardson reads in the Kiplinger newspaper that he's probably going to be fired by the president because he opposes war with Japan. <laughs> So that's how uh, Roosevelt did a lot of things, was indirectly and through other people. And uh, so, so Richardson was fired, and the fleet was kept at Pearl as an act of deterrence. So the next major milestone that I think, and I can, I can mention this really briefly, uh, JG, uh, is that Britain is about broke. They're just about broke. And Churchill writes this very long letter, is what historians call it, the very long letter to Roosevelt. And he works on it for weeks. And it's circulated throughout his entire government. And uh, it finally arrives early in December. Roosevelt's on a so-called fishing trip on a US cruiser down in the Caribbean. He's with Harry Hawkins, his closest advisor. And, uh, and the letter arrives. It's flown down to the ship. And they read it together. And Churchill basically says, thanks for all the help you've given us. Here's our strategic situation, but we're almost broke. And we've already placed more orders for war material with your country for the following year than we can pay for. Uh, we can't pay for it all. When, when they're ready to be picked up and delivered, we can't pay for them. So I'm asking you to help to pay for it 
and to help get it over to us because we're beginning to lose the war against the U-boats in the Atlantic. We're losing too many ships to the German U-boats. This is, uh, remember, this is late 1940 and the, the U-boats are starting to do tremendous damage to British commerce in the Atlantic. So Roosevelt has a problem. It was against the law to, to make war loans to Great Britain. That was called the Johnson Act. That had been passed in the 30s. And the Neutrality Act still said we couldn't put them on US merchant ships. Uh, we couldn't put war material on US merchant ships. We could sell it cash on the barrel head, but they had to carry it away on their own ships. So he ponders what to do for a while. He gets back to Washington. And by the time he arrives, he's made up his mind what he's going to do. And FDR holds a press conference on December 17th, which was just a masterpiece of public relations. So he gives this very simple uh, analogy or homily, if you will, of the garden hose to the reporters. And he's been, he's been gone for several weeks on his fishing trip. He's been a grouch, you know, to everybody that knew him since re-election, he'd been in a funk and depressed. Uh, and uh, so he comes back, he's in good spirits. And he says, he says, look, the best thing for the defense of the United States is to help Great Britain defend itself. He says, that's obvious to everybody right now. Well, it wasn't obvious to everybody. The American firsters didn't believe that. The isolationists didn't believe that, but that's what he had been selling the American people. If we help them defend themselves, it'll help us stay out of the war. So uh, he says, look, if my neighbor's house is on fire and I have a long garden hose and I, I'm four or 500 feet away and my neighbor comes over and wants to borrow my garden hose to put out the fire in his house, I don't say, give me $15 or I won't loan you my garden hose. I loan him the garden hose so that his house doesn't burn down and catch my house on fire. And then at the end, when the fire is out, he gives my garden hose back to me. So he introduces what became known as the Lend-Lease policy of uh, just building with our own money and giving, loaning, leasing Britain merchant ships by the hundreds in this press conference and, and building all kinds of war material, artillery, airplanes, rifles, and, and loaning it to Great Britain if they give it back after the war. Of course, I don't know how you give back a ship that's sunk or a rifle that's destroyed or artillery that's blown up or a tank that's been blown up, but he wasn't gonna worry about details. So this, he sells the concept to the public in that press conference. He then makes the most famous fireside chat the most famous radio speech he ever gave on December 29th. It is called the Arsenal of Democracy speech. And he sells the concept of Lend-Lease to the nation uh, as an emotional concept without any discussion of money. But uh, as- And th as this a, is really getting into that part, you know, we mentioned earlier about you know, FDR, the great persuader, you know, he's sort of yes. tugging at the heartstrings rather than talking about it in economic terms, but go on. That's right. So he, he not only talked about it in simplistic terms in the press conference, but, you know, he knew he had a much bigger audience at a fireside chat and they had worked on the speech for four days after Christmas. And so he gives this speech 
And it had the highest ratings of any speech he ever gave on the radio as a fireside chat. And more people read the speech later in the newspapers than read any other speech he ever gave in the newspapers. So, and it turns out he gives the speech on the same night when the German Air Force is trying to destroy the financial district in London called the city. And in the middle of the city is St. Paul's Cathedral, almost burned down that night. Everything around it did burn down. And the firewatch saved the cathedral with their stirrup pumps and their buckets of sand. 18 incendiaries uh, fell on the cathedral that night and they saved it. Uh, so he gives the, the speech at a very important time for Great Britain. Uh, and uh, they have this horrible attack, which destroys most of the financial district, almost destroys St. Paul's. They called it the second great fire of London. Well, the great fire had been in 1666. This was the second great fire on December 29th and 30th, 1940. And he gives his speech that night and they get to read about it in their newspapers the next day. So Roosevelt talks again about Lend-Lease in the State of the Union Address. Once again, in general terms, in general terms, but he starts to talk about the economics. So that's January 6th, 41. And he says, he's talking about all the nations fighting Hitler. And he says, he doesn't specifically say Great Britain. He talks about all the nations. Of course, all the other ones are minor. They're either defeated already, like France, or they're minor countries, you know, like, like uh, Greece fighting the Italians, right? So he says, we will not tell them that they must surrender because they don't have the tools to do the job themselves. So we're gonna become the great arsenal of democracy. And then the Lend-Lease Bill is introduced in Congress three or four days later, I think on the 10th. And so a two month debate ensues. The isolationists go crazy. I mean, uh, his primary opponent on the isolationist side in the Senate was Senator Wheeler, and in his speech during the great debate, he said, uh, Roosevelt's blank check, the Lend-Lease policy will plow under, will kill every fourth American boy. He said, will plow under every fourth American boy. Of course, this incensed Roosevelt. He considered uh, Wheeler to be a traitor and unpatriotic. But after two months of debate, everybody got what they wanted to say out of their system. And by the way, his Republican opponent, in the previous election in November 1940, when he ran for a third term, Wendell Wilkie endorsed Lend-Lease during the hearings. He came out and endorsed it. So a consensus developed during the two-month debate. Lend-Lease passed handily, handily. And then the problem became, how are we going to get all this stuff over there safely? We're going to give them all the material of war they need. They're not going to have to pay for it anymore. How are we going to get it over there? The U-boats are sinking a lot of ships. And so the people in Roosevelt's cabinet wanted him to convoy, surround all these merchant ships that belong to Great Britain and other nations with American Navy destroyers and cruisers and battleships and escort them all the way to England and protect them. And of course, Roosevelt wasn't ready to do this yet because he knew the isolationists would view 
convoying of these Lend-Lease goods as one more step closer to war. So he gave a big speech called the Unlimited National Emergency Speech on May 27th, in which he seemed to come this close to declaring war on Germany. I mean, he really let it all hang out. People thought that he was either close to declaring war or that he was about to announce convoying with the US Navy. And the very next day when he was asked, does this mean we're gonna convoy the Lend-Lease goods? He said, no, I didn't say anything like that. See, he backed off. It was a trial balloon and he backed off. So what happened was, this is what I want people to understand. Roosevelt and Churchill had advanced knowledge that Hitler was about to make his first big mistake. And that was turn on his temporary ally, Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union. He had made this deal, remember, with Stalin in August 39, the non-aggression pact, the Ribbentrop Pact, which cut Poland in two, and uh, it, it let Germany invade Poland in the West, and it, and it gave Stalin and his as his reward, the eastern part of Poland. He was about to turn on Stalin and attack his traditional enemy, the Soviet Union because that was the lifeblood of Nazi support in Germany, was anti-communism and fear of the USSR. Because, hey, Stalin was, uh, was a butcher, and uh, he really believed all this communist crap. He really believed it all. He believed in world revolution, and the, uh, the West will go to war against itself and eat its own guts out, and then we'll take over the world with Soviet armed forces, and, and the world will become a communist state. He believed all that. And the Germans knew he believed it. So Hitler wanted living room in the East, space in the East to expand Germany's territory and farmland. And uh, he said he was, anyway, he was about to do this big mistake and invade this enormous country, the world's largest country with almost unlimited manpower and natural resources. Roosevelt knew this. Uh, we had been leaked documents about it in January 41. Churchill knew it. The American people didn't know this was coming. And of course, until Hitler really does it, you wonder, is he really going to do this stupid thing? He hasn't made any mistakes yet. Is he really going to do this? So Roosevelt didn't want to start convoying yet and take any chance on starting a war with Germany yet because it might have distracted Hitler. It might have made him reconsider attacking the USSR. So, you know, Roosevelt wanted to see Hitler make that mistake. So anyway, so he didn't start convoying in May when people wanted him to. And he bided his time. And on June 22nd, Hitler made the biggest mistake of World War II, uh, the, uh, the second biggest mistake. And he invaded the USSR on June 22nd. And... Uh, so this is what much of my book is about. What happens after that? What happens after that? So what happens after that is the Japanese, I'm going to ask you to your audience to suddenly shift subjects, start thinking about the Japanese. After all, we're talking about FDR and Pearl Harbor, right? Okay. The Japanese, we knew, had been considering moving south for about a year taking territories to the south of China. How did we know this? We knew this 
from a lots of diplomatic hints, but also from code breaking. So the United States had pulled off this uh, mathematical and technological miracle and broken the Japanese diplomatic code in September of 1940. And we called it the purple code. And we called the intelligence we derived when we would break these messages and be able to read literally every word in their diplomatic messages from Tokyo, to and from Tokyo, we called the diplomatic messages magic. So if you hear the word purple or magic, that's what authors are talking about, the diplomatic code. So we knew from breaking the Japanese diplomatic code, which by the way, it took 18 months for army mathematicians to do this. A handful of six or seven people, geniuses. And then they designed a machine that would do this. And the Navy in the Navy yard in Washington built the machine for the army. And so the first diplomatic messages were decoded in late September, 1940. And Secretary of War Stimson was so impressed, he called it magic. And that's where that word came from, breaking the purple code. So we knew the Japanese were thinking about moving south. But as soon as Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, the Japanese suddenly had a, a big conflict internally. Russia was their traditional enemy ever since the Russo-Japanese War in 1904 and 1905. And Japan had you know, invaded Manchuria in 1931 and taking it over from the warlords that ran it and created a puppet state called Manchukuo. And, you know, the movie, The Last Emperor is about that puppet emperor. And, uh, and they were afraid that the Russians were going to kick them out of Manchuria and they were going to take it. So uh, the Japanese were debating amongst themselves during late June and July are we going to move south like we've been hoping to ever since ever since Hitler invaded the Netherlands and France and and has been fighting England? They really wanted to move south, the Japanese, for a whole year, and take the Dutch East Indies and uh, take Malaya and and take all the rice and tin in uh, in uh, French Indochina. But now they were split, and half of the Japanese. Uh, especially the army, the traditional enemies of Russia, wanted to go north instead. They said, hey, Hitler's got Stalin on the ropes. He's going to defeat Russia, the USSR, in just a couple of months, the way he did to France. We should strike Siberia and take uh, secure our flank and defeat the Russians once and for all instead of going south. So the Japanese had a debate going on, and we were aware of this from code breaking. And so one of Roosevelt's key advisors, the Secretary of the Interior, an acerbic guy named Harold Ickes, uh, opinionated, uh, always argumenting, uh, argumentative with the president, with everybody, threatened to resign numerous times. He writes the president a memo about foreign policy the week after Hitler invades the Soviet Union. I think it was the next day he wrote the memo. And he says, you know, we've been debating how to get into this war, meaning the war in Europe, but there's an easy way to do it now. If we just cut off Japan's oil and uh, get them to attack us, 
it, it'll because of the tripartite pact, it'll be an easy way to get into the war against Hitler. And, and people won't blame us then. People won't blame us for being an ally of the communist government. If we can get Japan to attack us, and we can do that by cutting off their oil. So Roosevelt was really upset that the Secretary of the Interior, the guy in charge of national parks, the guy he had put in charge of gasoline rationing, was telling him what to do with worldwide strategy. So he was very unhappy with Ickes. And finally, a week later, he writes him back and he lies and he says, oh, okay, I'm not really mad at you. I'm not really unhappy. But, you know, this is a very sensitive topic. You leave foreign policy to me. So what happens is, as the summer progresses, it becomes fairly clear from this code breaking, the, the diplomatic code breaking, that the Japanese are really serious about moving south, but that they still have people that want to go north. So Roosevelt asks the State Department and the Navy, what do you think about uh, embargoing oil to Japan and not selling them oil anymore? And both the State Department and the Navy that summer say, don't do that. If you cut off Japan from its oil in the United States, it will mean war. They will attack the Dutch East Indies, and then we will have no choice but to go to war. They'll feel uh, provoked, essentially. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. It, it would have been a major provocation uh, to cut them off from their, and this is a resource poor nation that doesn't have any steel of its own. It doesn't have any uh, oil. It has to import everything. And so the Navy and the State Department say, don't do that. But Hitler, as it turns out, a month after his invasion is very close to defeating the USSR. Very close. And so Roosevelt becomes... And FDR knows this, right? He knows this. He knows this. And all of his advisors, George Marshall, especially the chief staff of the army, says, oh, no, Russia won't even last six weeks. When, when they were invaded by the Nazis, he says, they'll fall in six weeks. And everybody says, no, they, they, can't, they can't hold up. Because Stalin had a purge and he shot 30,000 officers in 1937 and 38. That's how paranoid he was. And, uh, and, and there, you know, the, the Germans had great initial advances when they invaded the Soviet Union, rapid advances, cutting up and destroying several Russian armies. And so in July, through the diplomatic code breaking, Roosevelt becomes aware and his cabinet that the Japanese are about to take the southern half of French Indochina. That's what we would call South Vietnam. They had taken North Vietnam, they had pressured Vichy France, the defeated rump of France, pressured them into letting them build uh, air bases and put troops in northern French Indochina in September 1940. And now they were pressuring Vichy France into letting them have southern French Indochina for more bases and seaports. And this was viewed as an obvious uh, intent to invade the Southern regions. And of course it was, it was the stepping up point for invading the South. But Roosevelt also knew there was still this debate going on for going to war with Russia in the North. So Roosevelt decided against the advice, this is very important, against the advice of the State Department, against the advice of the Navy to embargo all oil to Japan anyway. 
because he knew that this would force Japan to abandon any thought of invading Russia in Siberia, and that instead Japan would have to invade the Dutch East Indies and go south. The Japanese military was already at war in China, a war they couldn't win, and they were so afraid of losing face they couldn't withdraw. They couldn't win and they couldn't withdraw. The war was bleeding them white economically and physically. And so they couldn't launch a, a two-front war against Siberia and Southeast Asia at the same time. They had to go either north or south, and we knew that. And they talk about that in their diplomatic messages to their embassies, that we're, we're going to decide what to do in the near future. You let us decide. We'll let you know. So Roosevelt, when he has an excuse, you see, it wasn't deterrence anymore. He had an excuse. The excuse was the Japanese took southern French Indochina late in July, on July 24th. We knew they were going to do this. So he decides on the 25th, I'm going to freeze all the Japanese assets in the United States. And they'll have to get two sets of licenses from different parts of the US government, a two-tier licensing system, which nobody could understand, to unfreeze and to buy anything. He never called it an oil embargo, but that was the net effect. It was a de facto oil embargo without calling it that. If he called it an oil embargo, the isolationists would have gone crazy. You're so he's really, he's really playing chess here. He's playing chess. Other Everybody else is playing checkers. He's playing not only chess, he's playing three-dimensional chess like on Star Trek. So uh, he uses the occupation of South Vietnam on July 24th, Southern French Indo, as the excuse. We're freezing all Japanese assets. Big newspaper headlines. And it meant there was an immediate de facto oil embargo. The Japanese internally went crazy. It, it was even more, so Roosevelt's intent was to prevent a Japanese invasion of Siberia because he thought that'll knock Russia out of the war. Hitler will win the war. If Hitler defeats the USSR and if Japan helps him by invading Siberia, then Hitler's won the Second World War, which would have been true. So uh, he forces, the, the oil embargo forces Japan to abandon any thought of going to war with Russia that year. And Roosevelt didn't know it, but on August 9th, the army decided, the Japanese army, we're not invading Russia this year. We can't do that now. We have to go south. We have to do what the Japanese Navy wants to do. We have to take the southern regions because we must have oil for the war machine. And by the way, there's a lot of rice and tin and rubber in Southeast Asia, too. And we need the rubber and the tin, and especially the rice. So it worked. Now, in doing so, Roosevelt knew that eventually this would mean war with Japan. Eventually, this would mean a clash with Japan. Once they invaded the Dutch East Indies, eventually, strategically, it would lead to war. It didn't guarantee how that would come about, but it, it meant that he was sacrificing the Dutch East Indies to save the USSR. And you know what? It worked. So unbeknownst to Roosevelt and others, and I'll just make this really brief, on September 6th, behind everybody's backs, liaison conferences, the military and the civilian government and the emperor, they decide on September 6th, 
listen to this, they're going to go to war with the United States, Great Britain, and England, and the Dutch East Indies. That's early. That's three months before the Pearl Harbor attack. But meanwhile, uh, we'll pursue diplomacy just in case we get lucky and we can get the U.S. to back off on the funds freeze and you know reinstate our oil supplies. But they made a tentative decision to go to war. Well, that does it for the first of our monster-sized two-part conversation with Douglas P. Horn on his book, The McCullum Memorandum, a story of Washington, D.C. in 1940-1941. In the second part of our episode, we'll get into even more juicy details from the book covering the prelude to U.S. entry into World War II and, of course, Pearl Harbor, which we commemorated the anniversary of this week. All that and more on the next edition of Parallax Views. And, of course, if you support the work here I'm doing at Parallax Views, please, 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 please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's a $1, $5, $10, $15, and $100 tier. Subscription to any tier will greatly help keep this show going. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to... Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above at my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, in addition to a few of our generous sponsors that keep this show going. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.